I'm the president of the U of T Jungian Association and a student therapist uh, and researcher at the University of Toronto. Today, I'm being joined by Daniel Gregg. Daniel is an educator, organizer, and artist living in Toronto. He studied cognitive science and philosophy at the University of Toronto, specializing in wisdom, consciousness, and spiritual belief and experience. In 2015, he founded the Mapping the Mind Conference in Toronto, which raises much needed funds for psychedelic research. Daniel regularly hosts lectures and workshops on topics in cognitive science and spirituality. When not contemplating the realm of the intellect, Daniel delves into the sonic perturbations of music as a songwriter, producer, and DJ. So thanks, Dan. It's great to have you on the program. Yeah, thanks. I always love to talk in general. <laughs> okay, tremendous. So before we sort of move on to what is going to be our main topic for today, I'm curious just about uh, you personally, uh, first of all, uh, about what brought you to the study of cognitive science, because that seems to be something that is quite central for your recent pursuits. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's actually a perfect place to start. So when I was, this is definitely also tied in with my interest in psychedelics and the interest in cognitive science and psychedelics are very much one and the same. My mm -hmm. initiation into these topics was via science fiction. Okay. So I remember um, the first psychedelic exposure I had was through um, one of the, the Dune novels. It was mm. before I had read the actual canon, I had read some of his son's work um those are I, I used to as a kid go to these sort of bargain bin depots where you could get like a box of books for ten dollars sure sure and in one of those was a book called the battle of corin and in that book um we get the story of how the uh guild navigators right the guild is like um they manage inter galaxy space travel and via their psychic powers they can uh, warp space and time to make space travel extremely quick and efficient and they do this by being immersed in a vat of spice gas. Spice is like a psychedelic substance that um, the worms on the dune planet shit out. And mm -hmm. so okay. this, um, this drug is like the, the main currency of the universe of dune, so to speak. It is like very addictive, and if you take enough of it, it'll turn your eyes blue. And then if you take enough after that, it'll actually warp your body. And so the guild um, navigators, they look like aliens, but... Uh, they were at one point human, but they being saturated in the spice gas, their body is mutated and their consciousness is mutated and they gain these interesting powers. And in the Battle of Corin, the, the first individual ever to do this, it's a, a woman, a mathematician, um, and she's trying to like do the calculations for um, space bending uh, and taking enough spice to like comprehend the higher dimensional realities that she's trying to grapple with. Uh, and eventually she realizes the spice itself is the key. And there's this scene where... Um, you know, space and time unfolds, and it's a very psychedelic trip, um, certainly, mm -hmm. that she goes on, and there was a, a sense of, like, fascination and awe that emanated out from the text in that moment, and I think from that, it definitely set the foundations for uh, my, my f future pursuits. Mm -hmm. So, I, when I was younger, I, I pretty much only read fiction for a long time, and especially sci-fi, fantasy, horror, that kind of stuff. And I, I initially took a degree in English at Brock University, but um, some god or another intervened um, for some reason inexplicable to me or anybody I could talk to. OSAP was like, we are just not going to give you your funding. So I wasn't able to 
enroll in my next year because I owed money to the university. So I had to spend some time reflecting and um, working up the money to pay that off so that I could get OSAP again to go back to school. In that time, I was using psychedelics a bit more deeply, um, getting into more spiritually oriented literature, started mm. reading about like yoga and meditation, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And in that time, I realized, well, you know, if I want to be a writer, which was my initial goal, all I have to do is to be good at writing, which you can do in any discipline. So English seemed a little um, self-absorbed in a certain kind of way. I felt if I wanted to write sure, uh, science fiction, that like something like cognitive science would give me the tools to do that mm. more productively. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, that's cool. It opens up more options. You know, um, I could, for instance, get involved with the psychedelic research stuff. And if I decide not to do that at the end, I'm probably going to be a way better sci-fi writer than uh, I would if I had taken uh, some other degree. So that's the story. Right. That is a very interesting backstory. Um, almost like you've been on a sort of divigation uh, <laughs> a lot of this time when uh, I think, you know, just from hearing about your previous work or reading your, your bio or what have you, um, people would guess that uh, your, your passion this whole time had been, uh, you know, research into cognition or psychedelics or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, to some extent, it seems that for you, that was, uh, at least at the beginning, uh, something of a means to an end. Yeah, yeah, an interesting detour. Um, and I did get very carried away in uh, the detour I was taking. So I and many others were convinced that I was like definitely on that psychedelic research track. Mm. Um, you know, I did a number of lectures on like psychedelics, trying to educate uh, the general public, making the research accessible, uh, in, like a seminar series that I did. And I also had done some acting before, and I kind of was, I think, just good enough at acting that even in that role, people were very convinced. <laughs> and then I took their convinced seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just kind of a surprise that in the last like year, year and a half, I was like, wait a second, no, hold on, that was just a detour. I really do not need that identity. Um, it's interesting and it's fun and I like to perform that, but I feel that it is ultimately a performance and that my more mm -hmm. authentic identity uh, does relate more around the arts and around literature. Um, so I found myself getting back into thinking about um, narrative creation and world creation and with my interest in like spirituality and spiritual spiritual experience i've been trying to formulate some gods um, that will uh, exist around the periphery of a sort of narrative universe i want to build the primary one being and then the god of stories and time or at least the primary one in my personal practice hmm interesting you've mentioned one uh experience of God already, I think, in passing, which is uh, this very Jungian idea of, of God being, you know, that which stands in my way and blocks my path, mm -hmm. prevents me from uh, going through with a previously ordained plan, which seems to be the God that prevented you from uh, further pursuit in, in English, which is where you were headed at that time. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting because it did seem like unexplainable. Nobody really knew why. Mm. that happened it didn't make any sense and it was like in my second semester and they had already given me the approval and like the amount that i was going to get and then they were just like jk lol <laughs> so it was bizarre and I, I do feel that it would make more sense at least um it's more true to say that there was some kind of divine intervention um, and often that happens through what appears to be chaos some inexplicable randomness um yeah, so that's kind of bizarre. And it's like different from the typical religious experience that one would expect, right? It's a very sort of real life kind of miraculous intervention. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you, your journey is particularly interesting to me, I think, because it has certain parallels to my own mm. uh, narcissistically. Uh, something that listeners may not know about me is that my previous 
graduate degree before the one I'm in now was actually in English literature. And for various reasons, uh, not sure if it was the hand of God, uh, but for various reasons, uh, including the real paucity of, um, I think, good academic jobs in that discipline, I, I decided to shift course. Um, but I've certainly felt like for me, in order to be uh, really fulfilled in what I was doing, I needed to have this ability to kind of shift between just a pure engagement, um, you know, in the arts, in literature, uh, in acting, which I've done as well, and, and also, um, I don't know, perhaps t taking a, a step back or putting on a different set of goggles and being able to view things from a more uh, analytic lens, uh, a, a more scientific lens potentially, or, or just um, a more practical lens maybe. And it seems like right now you're sort of in between those two realms a little bit. So I'm curious to hear, just to start us off, maybe a little bit about the work that you're doing at the moment and perhaps how it relates to our topic for today, which, by the way, is uh, media and revelation. Yes. I like those words together. Um, I, I definitely do resonate with a bunch of that. And I think, mm. yeah, having an initiation into more of a, a logical, literal kind of thinking was very helpful in being able to flip through those perspectives. Sure. I know there's a guy, um, what's his name again? He wrote the book, The Master and His Emissary. Do you? Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar. What? How am I, why am I forgetting this right now? Anyways, he's like um, a neuroscientist, and he talks about like the master and his emissary are basically the two lobes of the brain, um, one of which has this attentional style of uh, more logical, rational processing. Um, it specializes, you know, the left hemisphere specializes in the manipulation of uh, tools, be they physical tools or conceptual tools like logic and mathematics. And then the right hemisphere is more um, socially oriented. It's the part of our brain that also gives rise to mystical experiences and its attentional style is more diffuse and creative and so there's an ongoing interplay between these he argues mm. that um, the right brain should be the master and the left the emissary um, otherwise we do things where we destroy the whole planet and the climate change and whatever um, so right yeah <laughs> there's um Definitely advantages to both of them, right? I think earlier I was uh, very much lodged within the sort of creative right brain thing. And um, mm -hmm. it's funny, I'd noticed a trend in my cognition where it was very hard for me to parse um, the difference between like poetic and literal language, which I think has something to do with my unique kind of neurodivergence. Um, so going through this degree really helped me to like separate those boundaries, um, which I think is very good for, um, you know, for example, if I'm like speaking publicly or if I'm writing something, being very clear about when something like is an image. Uh, a metaphor, but then also being clear when metaphor um, is more actual, more true than something logical or literal, which is what I also mentioned about uh, the God intervention thing. There's something mm -hmm. about reality that is being grasped more profoundly uh, when I say that that perhaps is the activity of some divine intervention than if I say, oh, well, there was like chaos generated within the system, right? There's like something meaningful in my life, right? There's this sort of like narrative momentum that I'm being put on, which at the end of my life will be able to fully make sense of. In that initial instance, I think it makes more sense to say that there was the intervention of some higher order system that I ended up in, um, which is what's being communicated via the God language. Well, I, uh, I think a philosopher like uh, Nietzsche would say, for example, that uh, what we think of as literal language, as just literal true language, is really uh, sort of 
metaphors that have lost their metaphorical quality yes in some sense i agree and that's again why i think the poetic style should mm -hmm. have um you know i agree with whatever that dude's name is that mcgilchrist is this the guy yes ian mcgilchrist that's it so yeah I, I agree with ian that the poetic style of attention and of language should take priority it is i think a confusion to say that literal stuff is more actual because yeah it's just mm -hmm. highly abstracted right because what is language in the first place? It is like a series of sounds redeployed to encode some kind of meaning. It doesn't actually, like, there is still a remove from any vocal utterance and the thing that is being communicated with it. And I think it's something of an illusion to say that speaking directly or speaking li literally is somehow not um, metaphorical. It's certainly, I think the poetic literal distinction can be made, but yeah, there is something deeply like metaphorical, there's like a cross-linking of information being done when we're using literal language, when we're using logic. And like logic itself is very interesting because, you know, formal logic doesn't really have any content, right? Mm -hmm. So it would be kind of bizarre to say that something that doesn't actually have any content really could be somehow more profound or more true. Yeah, there's a lot of trains we could get into, I feel. I'm gonna stop there. There was another question um, about how this relates to the work that I'm doing. Sure. Which I think I wanted to touch on before. Sure. We dive too deep in one or another direction uh-huh um so the thing that i've been working on for a while which i hope will be finished very soon is a book called illumination games um and i, I should give the context that perhaps that's a working title uh this book okay. has had a bunch of titles what i like right now the most is illumination games a guide to psychedelics and mystical experiences and the polyphasic shift um that book was supposed to have been written with john verveke so some people who may have um Come across any of the other work I've done on my website or, you know, for John's podcasts. Um, might have heard it discussed as the cognitive continuum, which I always thought was a very silly name because everything <laughs> in the brain is a cognitive continuum that doesn't okay, isolate anything sure. meaningful. The idea was supposed to be that there's a continu continuity between insight, flow, and mystical experiences, that these all play upon um, the same kind of uh, neural functions. Mm -hmm. uh, those neural functions I am referring to as the gnosis network. Because for one thing, my editor said that's not the best name because it sounds like a superhero group, and I thought that's exactly why I should use it. <laughs> um, and secondly, because Gnosis is this kind of like embodied relational knowledge, which often myth and metaphor transmits more readily than propositional knowledge, right? We can set out a series of propositional rules about how to behave, but that's not going to be nearly as transformative as, say, having people participate mm -hmm. in a narrative about Christ and then maybe giving them some drugs at the end and getting them to take that knowledge deeply into the body. Sure. And yeah, there, look... there, there's a few terms I want to try and define sort of as we're moving along yeah. here. The, the first is, this might be a difficult one, but uh, gnosis. What is gnosis? Where do we get that term from? Yeah, so yeah, gnosis is, um, so there's different kinds of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And then gnosis we get from um, ancient philosophy and ancient religion. Mm -hmm. uh, there are Christians called Gnostics, for example. And the Gnostic Christians differ from the Orthodox Christians in prioritizing direct experience of God. Right? right, so they would use techniques of consciousness manipulation, potentially um, psychoactive substances, to engender the experience that they have been immersed in God, or have you know traveled beyond the boundaries of the known universe, out beyond Saturn, to um, sit in the lap of God and His throne in the Empyrean realms beyond. Mm -hmm. So it's deeply felt. It's existential, existential kind of knowledge, right? We can differentiate this in cognitive um, scientific terms um, with. Uh, there's a, like four distinctions we can make about knowledge. So we have propositional knowledge, which is knowing that, being able to say, for example, um, you know, trees, like cedar trees grow in High Park, 
That's right. a proposition we can have. Sure. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily tell us how we should participate with trees, and that's another kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, so having relationships, um, knowing how to play an instrument, right? You're participating with the instrument, um, especially when it comes to like love relations and stuff. Participating with another and loving another is not a matter of um, saying propositions about them, but about uh, being able to adjust your behavior to accommodate the preferences of the person you know. Sure. Uh, there's also procedural knowledge, which is like how to do a particular kind of task, knowing how. Oh, and then we have perspectival knowledge, um, which is knowing what it's like to be a certain thing. Um, mm. So, for example, my perspective now is very different from the perspective that I had when I was a child. And if I visit some childhood environment, uh, it might be starkly um, where I might be starkly aware of how my perspective um, differ differs from my perspective as a child. I might still get some residue of enchantment of a particular place I went. If I revisited Disney World, right, I might uh, be able to elicit the perspective that I had when I was a kid, and there would be some reminiscence and some nostalgia about that. Mm -hmm. And then perspective taking, of course, is very important for managing social relations. Um, and then many philosophers think that you can't know what it's like to be even inanimate objects, but there I would disagree. I think it's very possible for us to, for example, take on the perspective of what it's like to be a tree. And we do that through myth and metaphor. Mm -hmm. And so literal language is restricted basically to propositional knowing and to teaching people how to do procedures. But the procedure is carried out in the action, right? The whole of the knowledge is not in the propositions used to teach somebody, but in the embodied action. Right. And then gnosis pertains to perspectival and participatory knowing, most deeply ah. in participatory knowing. Hmm. Okay, yes, thank you. So you wrapped that together nicely. My, my next question was going to be, uh, how does Gnosis play into these? And it seems like Gnosis is this sort of mystical, embodied experience that um, is drawing upon forms of uh, perspectival, you said, and really participatory knowledge. So mm -hmm. that's great. So before I diverted us a bit, you were telling us a bit about the Gnostic network and mm -hmm. what its relevance is to your work. Yeah, so there's a bit in the book where I talk specifically about the sort of psychological and um, neurological basis of this. The main aspects of it uh, run along the right temporal lobe, so we have like the ventral attention network, um, mm -hmm. and areas beneath the right temporal lobe um, and within it that generate electrical instability in the brain and kind of like overthrow our networks uh, and allow us to see into a new way. And so this engenders, for example, insight flow and mystical experiences, and so we can imagine an insight um, this is how it's usually talked about in psychology and in cognitive science. It, it's the moment that initiates uh, a break in one's frame, right? So we have, for mm -hmm. example, riddles, a common riddle used in psychology is the multiple marriage problem. Uh, that problem goes something like this. Let me see if I can remember the precise wording. So a man marries a hundred women. Polygamy is illegal in his state and he has broken no laws. How has this happened? Mm. So can you guess? He's married a hundred women, polygamy is illegal, and he's broken no laws. These are the three premises. Mm -hmm. um, he is uh, a reverend. He's done the marrying. Yes. Of a, okay. Yeah, yeah, you got it. So did it like take you a second to like? Reframe? Yeah, it took me a moment. I had to to delineate the three premises individually mm -hmm. before I could make the connection. Right, and you have to realize that the three premises are somehow misleading. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, they don't give you the information, and in fact, they try to mislead you by um, bringing to mind the fact that it would be illegal if he were to have married all of these people. So then, you know, people solving this problem, they try to grapple with it. Uh, and within the bounds of a frame where it's like, well, if he is the person marrying these people, 
um, right? It's also a sort of grammatical mislead, right? Um, Mary is usually used in the sense of like, I am marrying someone rather than a priest, unless you're perhaps friends with a priest. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to solve that problem, you need to have a little aha to be like, oh, I see, right? There's that little shift in perspective where you reframe the propositions. Uh, and once they are in the appropriate relation, then there is an illumination of the correct answer. Mm-hmm. And we can imagine mystical experiences to be something like that, but like greater in magnitude and in duration. So these little aha moments that we have, they're usually pleasurable. Um, they feel good. There's like a, a brightening of consciousness and they bring into mind new knowledge. And in mystical experiences, people will often say that they are, for example, the most meaningful in their lives, right? If you right. take psychedelics and you experience immersion in the Godhead, people come back from that and they're like, wow, I think I got to like rethink everything. And so where insights mm. um, overthrow misframes in the, within the frame of consciousness, mystical experiences, they sort of act on consciousness overall and they can like overthrow the networks um, involved in making sense of their sort of like pre-conscious attitudes um, that are generated. Uh, they can be overthrown and replaced by mystical experiences. They're sufficiently world shattering that they can actually bring you into a different kind of relationship with the world, which might warrant even being said that that is another world you're entering into. And that's part of the process, for example, of like becoming Christian or becoming Buddhist is that often people are mediated into those worlds through these experiences. They undergo mm -hmm. um, a rebirth and then they are no longer the same kind of person. Now I am a Christian person. Now I am a Buddhist person, which is like an ontologically, relationally different kind of person. It's a qualitatively different kind of person than one was before. Mm -hmm. And in order to enter into that world, these experiences help to shatter the worlds that we once inhabited and to bring us into a new one. Right. So again, we're seeing this, I guess, sort of dual process that we mentioned earlier, where you're being led by this, this insight, this mystical experience, I think we could perhaps call it a revelation. Mm -hmm. And then there comes the work of actually integrating that, you know, maybe it, in a way where, you know, you're actually having to sort of logically parse out, uh, I guess, what the conclusions are of, of this experience and what its relevance is to your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. That reminds me of, um, I was listening to a little bit of the rather amusing conversation between John Verbeke and Jordan Peterson. Right. And one of the yes. things that Jordan was mentioning, he was like, don't you think that there's like some kind of relationship between there's like a revelatory part of cognition and like um, a critical part of cognition? Mm -hmm. And that's like exactly the sort of thing that you're mentioning. And that, mm -hmm. you know, breaks down into these like different attentional and relational networks in the brain. Right. Um, and yeah, that's like a, a core part of uh, the book that I'm writing. Uh, makes that problem a little bit clearer in a little bit of different terms. Um, but yeah, I think that is about right. There is this constant relationship and interplay between revelation, which appears to flow in from the outside, and then criticism on that, which is now within the bounds of the world one inhabits. Hmm. And yeah, so making sense of mystical experiences, that is like pretty hard. And we're trying to grapple with that right now. That's what the polyphasic shift is. It's a shift ah, very between good. different okay. kinds of culture. Yeah, this was going to be my next question. So yes. please say more about the polyphasic shift and what that means. So. Polyphasic is a term used by anthropologists and cultural commentators in relation with the word monophasic. Mm -hmm. And so phasic, that part refers to like different, um, different flows of activity in the brain, right? If we think about like the typical EEG setup where you put electrodes on people's heads, we have different brain waves. And uh, in the normal waking state, we have like a uh, dominance of the brain state called alpha. And then as we get into like deep meditative states, there are um, the waves become slower. Um, those are usually called theta states. Uh, those are also the states that are involved in initiating dreams and that kind of thing. 
our, quote, Western culture has typically prioritized only those kinds of thinking that can happen within the sober rational state. Mm -hmm. uh, even if the individuals involved in that culture have not been um, meeting that standard, the general standard of like knowledge and reality and relationship in our culture is to use like the science and the reason and the analysis and all of that. So that's like a monophasic culture. There's like one way, one truth and one state of mind mm. that is elevated above all else, right? And even God transforms across time to being the God of reason. And then we have, oh, those silly ancients who had to have the dreams because they didn't have the reason that we have. But now that we're Protestant colonialists, we have elevated beyond the need for that. And through our own reason, we can just do whatever the hell we want because, you know, maybe the native anyways there's a lot to be said there <laughs> but okay so yeah monophasic is like basically one state of mind is elevated above all else dreams they're not real um, trances they're not real right polyphasic cultures value perceptual diversity so mm -hmm. you know trance states dreams psychedelics uh, meditation uh, all that stuff uh, those are all legitimate avenues for accessing knowledge in cultures that are polyphasic now as psychedelics are becoming more prominent in our culture, right? I think within 10 years, we're gonna have a very different world. We're gonna have psychedelic therapy available. Um, I know some people working on immersive uh, theater performances that use new media technologies to yeah. um, basically hack people's brains to initiate mystical experiences, mm. uh, even without drugs. Interesting. A friend of mine has just started uh, a company for, um, it's like a, she's got like a, it's, she's an EEG therapist. So the, they use neurofeedback. You put like a headset on and then uh -huh. you get like a visualization of uh, your brain waves, And then right. you're walked through methods to control your brain waves. Right. And oh, it's interesting because this can even be done at a distance, right? The therapist doesn't have to be there. You get your own headset. The therapist guides you over the phone. So like, that's interesting, right? Like distant mm. brain manipulation. Mm. So all of these things are like very different from the culture we once had. Like these things all would have been uh, considered, um, you know, mad weird pagan retrogression or something like that right okay. even like you know back in the early 20th century freud was like not very down with mystical experiences he thought they were infantile right um sure regressive yeah mm -hmm. Jung was very different but Jung was also uh, a bit of a pariah amongst most of the uh, sort of more hard science folk right sure and i think even Jung himself at least publicly espoused this sort of view that um it would be uh, kind of primitive to assume that mystical experiences have the sort of reality that we might mm. initially ascribe to them. I think, you know, he says at multiple points that in our enlightened time, we're able to see things as having a psychological reality mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, this other sort of reality that perhaps a quote unquote primitive culture would assign to them. And I think, right. you know, uh, I'm hoping that we're starting to perhaps move a little bit beyond that view. Mm -hmm. I think Jung himself, in private, probably <laughs> was not completely in line with that view. That's my suspicion. But it certainly seems to be the case from what you're saying that we're moving towards this sense that, you know, there are these different sorts of realities we can engage with, that not everything has to be sort of um, parsable according to the same forms of scientific language, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, in some circles more than others, the main scientific apparatus still very much is entrenched within this like enlightenment theory. Um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the sort of colonial monophasic stuff falls out of this attitude of enlightenment rationalism, um, where like reason, there's like universal truths that um, reason according to the proper rules can get anybody towards. 
Um, so the hard sciences are still very much entrenched in that attitude, but you do have like the sort of weird outliers, like many of the people in the psychedelic therapy movements are themselves very bizarre and have like um, what would be considered relative to that view very um, weird and romantic ontological views. Uh -huh. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of hubris, there's a lot of pride in our shift into a polyphasic reality where, you know, this attitude of Ewing, which um, is shared very broadly, that mm -hmm. there is something like primitive and mistaken about ancient people's views of the world. Mm -hmm. And that with our enlightened minds, we can like make better on these anomalous states of consciousness. Um, yeah, there's something like deeply confused about that. Um, and so that's like a problem we have to grapple with. And that's part of the problem that I'm trying to grapple with in my book, Illumination Games. Yeah, so I think, for example, like with the therapeutic model, um, you know, there's a number of ways we can integrate psychedelics and integrate consciousness alteration into our culture. Uh, mm. And the main therapeutic model is very removed from broader um, ontological, social, cultural issues that I think are like deeply relevant. In order to be a polyphasic culture that is good, we have to have a very different kind of culture, right? And so one mm. thing that gets left out a lot of the time in the discourse on psychedelics, I mean, there's definitely exemptions. If you look at, for example, the website Symposia, they're a blog that um, is focused on accountability in psychedelics, especially in the sort of cultural uh, influence of corporations on, on psychedelic culture. But for the most part, the discussions on like, well, what do we do with our relationship to reality uh, are not being really had. And when we look at therapy as the model for using psychedelics, it's extremely focused on like an individual's experience and we praise these compounds for being able to liberate people from uh, treatment resistant depression and trauma and anxiety and all of these you know horrible conditions mm -hmm. but then the strictly capitalist corporations will often quote um, like world health organization stats that like um, mental illness costs two trillion dollars in lost productivity every right. year right but like, if we're not physically or emotionally capable of like meeting that standard of productivity, maybe using the therapy to force our bodies to do something we couldn't do without the polyphasic imagination is like not the kind of world we want to live in. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. I think that, I mean, really since the genesis of psychotherapy, since psychoanalysis, many therapists have pushed the view that in fact, the goal of therapy is not to rid ourselves of, of symptoms. That's something that often comes in therapy uh, quite quickly, actually, at least according to the psychoanalytic view. People often will start coming into an analysis and be rid of their symptoms, you know, within a few weeks, it, which seems quite remarkable. Um, but the, the analyst, uh, their view is, of course, that that is not really the goal of treatment. The goal of treatment is <laughs> to have this sort of deeper form of insight into the ways that uh, you know, one is functioning in the world um, and uh, not simply to, you know, get rid of the symptoms and then a little while goes back and the symptoms pop up again. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that is a trend, I think, uh, that you seem to be gesturing toward as well, that our current views of therapy are, okay, How what's the most efficient way to rid ourselves of these uh, terrible symptoms so that we can get back to being productive? Whereas there's a sort of uh, different sort of integrative work a form of work of kind of assessing where one is at in one's life that is maybe being passed over by that mm -hmm. absolutely and also you know this highly individualist focus if we have a bunch of people with mental illness in a culture like those people are like hand fingers on the hands of one or another culture angel right and mm. you know 
say the hand is getting too close to the fire and its fingertips begin to blacken. That's the people with depression and mental illness. But there's a hand there that needs to be moved away from the fire. Right. We don't like put aloe on it and keep reaching into the fire. <laughs> That's a great metaphor. <laughs> that yeah. would be ridiculous. <laughs> um, and yeah, also there's an important thing to mention. Like there's a lot of like wise psychotherapists and there's something that I'm still trying to figure out on how to communicate effectively because, you know, I know a lot of the people in um, like the psychedelic communities around Toronto and I've been to some of the international conferences and such. Uh -huh. And there are a lot of like good and wise people who are focused on like good and wise things. But again, we are each individually just like, we're like ants in a bunch of hive colonies. And those hive colonies are driven by like higher order systems, which I like to call the angels of culture or the gods of earth. And so there's that complication. And in addition, it's not like the wise and good psychotherapists who, you know, people love and are inspired by that have the most influence on culture. It's the corporate ones, right? It's not Freud, but Freud's nephew who gets into mm. corporate America and invents PR and manipulates women to smoke by telling them that they'll get their freedom penises if they smoke, right? Um, the Century of the Self documentaries are like really good. They're free on YouTube. They go through this history very thoroughly. And you know, the psychedelic influence is most deeply in the most pathological corporate influence that we have, right? Silicon mm -hmm. Valley is like where this shit is happening and flowing out of. Yeah, That's where psychedelics took their refuge after the hippies in the 60s gave up. And a lot of those people went on to be programmers, right? Like even Steve Jobs had many revelations about technology on the, under the influence of LSD. Um, and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, these people are going to Burning Man. Um, there was a... A Business Insider article that I read recently, um, the tagline of which was um, ayahuasca is as common as coffee in the Silicon Valley. So, yeah, it's not the good a and wise bit, inspiring. terrifying. Yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> hmm. So oh, I'm definitely interested in coming back to this topic. But uh, before we do, I want to guide us back, hopefully, to our intended theme mm -hmm. a bit. Um, so we were talking about I'm forgetting the exact terms we were using, but something like that, that there are sort of these two aspects to consciousness or experience, a sort of more critical aspect and a more uh, maybe revelatory aspect. I don't remember. Maybe you remember the terms we were using better. Those ones work well enough. Okay, Yeah. sure. And so I guess what I want to ask is, uh, how is a medium like literature, for example, um, influencing those modes, those forms of consciousness? Is it influencing one rather than another? And, and how do we use mm -hmm. it in those ways? Yes. I just remembered terms that I think I would prefer over the criticism revelation. Great. So there's a book that I really like called Technic and Magic. And so I think that we could talk about these cognitive modes in terms of um, technical versus magical. Okay. So, so and just to flesh those out a bit further, when we say technical, we're talking about this sort of um, left brain, uh, sort of more um, logical, attempting to to be sort of practical and integrate uh, insights. And and when we're talking about magical, sort of inverse, something like um, you know the pattern recognition, having insights, stuff like that. Is that right? Would you yeah. elaborate on that a bit? Um, yeah, I can elaborate a little more. Um, that's like roughly correct. And then for the side of the mind of Technic, um, that one is very concerned with, you know, breaking everything down into its constituent elements and mm -hmm. figuring out oh, great. the universal relations that pertain to the constituent elements. Um, so we have like mathematics and deductive reasoning. Um, that stuff resonates very deeply with the mode of mind called Technic. And then magic is more about receptivity and relationship and poetry. And the linguistic modes that these brain um, 
these different mental modes use. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that I just sort of more clarified deeply yesterday. Um, so with literal language, we have a sort of like pointing out. Um, and then with the magical poetic mode, uh, we have a bringing together. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I could say like, that is a tree. Or right. I can bring together the information between me and the tree to say, this tree is a kind of person that has certain kinds of preferences. Hmm. So that mental mode brings together information in a way which is non-literal. I'm not pointing out something literal, but I am bringing together information in a way that enables hmm. um, optimal relationship. Uh, in a sense, with the former, you're sort of distinguishing, for example, an object from its environment. Yeah. Whereas with the latter, you're bringing what you perceive as a certain object into relation with uh, other features, mm -hmm. other sort of uh, mental concepts, objects, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, oh, yes. Um, so there's also a different relational stance that these modes promote. And the uh -huh. technic mode is one of observation at a distance. Uh -huh. And then the magic mode is intimate relationship, right? So you might go to the forest and you're overwhelmed with awe. And you feel as though you're deeply, intimately in tune with the environment, right? But mm -hmm. with the mode of technic, you can't do that. You have to stand far enough away from it that you can cut everything up. Um, right. And this terminology, um, the author uh, Federico Campagna for this Technic and Magic book, um, he gives a number of different definitions of Technic. It was a term that was very popular among um, like existentialists and continental philosophers uh, mm -hmm. in the early mid 20th century. Sure. Uh, so Heidegger, for example, he says that with the mode of Technic, uh, you translate the forest so that it is no longer like a thing in itself, but a standing stockpile of reserves waiting to be exploited for some productive purpose. Right. But if you're more deeply in touch with the forest, right? Let's say um, like with indigenous cultures who believe that the forest is like a living thing, which uh, we can only take from it if we ask. We have to be very deeply in touch with the preferences of the forest. Um, you couldn't really do that, right? You just, one of those modes doesn't really line up with the other, right? So we have to be sensitive to like when it's appropriate to engage the mode of technic. And just because we can grow things, um, quote, infinitely, um, just because we can put the water or the trees to a productive purpose doesn't necessarily mean we should, which we are discovering now. Because we don't really live in a kind of world where that we're observing from a distance. We are intimately involved with everything. And so if you exploit enough shit, then you throw off all of the balance of intimate relationships that supports all life on Earth and everything just erupts. Mm -hmm. So you can see the participatory truth in the magical mode because that one's going to get you to be more sensitive and attuned to um, broad-reaching relations that might not be graspable at first to uh, the more critical technical aspect of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're sort of diagnosing this kind of rapacious form of dealing with the world as maybe a lack uh, of that sort of magical uh, mode of, of organizing one's relation yeah. with the world. Yeah, that's what has been called disenchantment. That would uh, be the most familiar term. Mm, great. Okay, so we have these two modes, the, the technical and the magical. And uh, what is literature? if we want to stick with that example, doing for us in terms of those two modes? Mm -hmm. So I like, um, I read a book recently on sacred reading, which was mm -hmm. written by a, can't remember what exact subset of Christianity was, but he was a monk of some kind um, from yeah. Australia. And uh, Verbeke talks about this a lot as well. So anyone familiar with him will probably have been familiar with this. Um, but it's like sacred reading is like a practice. It's a, a way of relating to literature. 
And in the beginning of the book on sacred reading by this author, he talks about how the availability of that kind of media in the ancient world would have just on its own set a context that we now have to artificially erect around ourselves. We have access to just impossible amounts of knowledge, right? As far as the limits of human cognition go, that information is infinite. There is no way that any one person could ingest all information that exists, right? Our machine algorithms are having an even harder time with that too, right? So there's just too much, and we don't really have any respect or reverence for literature, right? There is this model that art and literature is entertainment, and with an entertainment model, we don't really establish a two-way relationship with the media. Mm. It flows out towards us, and we are entertained, and that's pretty much it. We just, you know, go to turn our brains off to escape. Yeah. But with the context of, you know, let's imagine like a, a medieval monastery, and there is a library there, and as a person participating in this monastery, you have to have a deep respect for each of the texts there, because, you know, we didn't have printing presses, everybody had to write that shit out by hand. So you just assume mm. that if we have preserved something for hundreds of years, that there is a deep sort of value in that. And so, it's not like me picking up a random book at a library and reading it, and like, taking a critical attitude and being like, well, this is crap, and then putting it back. Um, if I disagree with it at first, and I'm in that medieval context, I might be like, well, what is there of value in this? What am I missing, right? Mm -hmm. And so you open yourself up to revelations through the text. And the Bible in particular is not just a revelation that happened to the prophets, it's an ongoing revelation. We dialogue with the visions of Ezekiel, of Isaiah, and of the stories of Christ. And we let them flow into us in engaging with those texts in order to be existentially transformed, right? To transform us from a mundane person, um, what Kierkegaard would call the natural man or the pagan man into the Christian man, that qualitative difference shifting into a world that's happen happening via the mediational technology of, of books. But in order to have that happen, uh, it helps to have this attitude of like reverence towards the text. So that's like a fundamental part of the sacred reading practice is to uh, approach texts with reverence. Another important part is to focus on texts that are challenging, texts that you might not necessarily agree with at first or that somehow violate your sensibilities of right and wrong. Great, okay. So the Old Testament and even like the New Testament, all of it, the whole Bible, it's just, I think the best way to understand it is as a piece of horror fiction. Okay, okay. God is a monster. He uses genocide to solve his problems in an uncomfortable amount of time. The Psalms <laughs> compare the person relating to God as like a lowly worm, right? Mm -hmm. And we're yet supposed to believe that even though atrocity is always happening and that God's revelation acts out upon history via violence and bloodshed, that this is somehow in our best interest. And as a side note, I would love to write a book called Thank You, Daddy, A Judeo-Christian Approach to Trauma. <laughs> Great, we'll have our eyes peeled for that coming <laughs> yes. soon. Um, so yeah, so grappling with something which is at first like incomprehensible, it lies beyond your sensibilities, that's like a perfect kind of text to use in a sacred reading practice, because in order to understand it, you have to be transformed. And mm. so uh, the books of the Bible are very short, um, they can be read uh, within like a day or a few days, and those are also an optimal format for the sacred reading practice. Very lengthy texts are hard because you have to keep the same sort of investiture in that text and you have to expect that it'll persist for like months. Um, whereas short things that can be digested immediately, um, you can hold them all in presence at once and sort of contemplate them more deeply. Um, and there's also 
the sense of fascination that really helps, right? Um, it doesn't help to just read something that someone else uh, is telling you to read, but something that elicits a sense of like fascination in you uh -huh. is deeply important for getting something out of it because the fascination is like the tug of that magical mode of mind, um, which is at first outside of the boundaries of um, the self world. Mm. Um, so fascination and like fixation on a text, something where you're like, why am I so obsessed about this? That's the perfect thing to follow because that's like Great. your sort of pre-conscious um, or like liminal conscious networks grasping onto something that is perhaps potentially transformative for you in particular. Um, so all of these things can be applied to any piece of media, right? The guy who wrote this book is like, you have to make sure that the books are like appropriate. They have to be revelation. And for him, that's restricted to the stuff that's happening in the church. There's only that one legitimate revelation. But mm -hmm. all art is revelation. Some of it is more worthy of study than others. Some of it has more profound transformations to offer than others. But every piece of art is a revelation. So we can use this practice with comic books, with video games, with um, literature, anything at all. And we can still follow those guidelines, right? Like having deep reverence and respect, something that's been preserved by a community, uh, even or perhaps especially if people aren't really sure why it's been preserved. Um, mm -hmm. Short stories um, and sort of short to mid-range lengths of media are optimal for this, movies, for example. And also things that are like disturbing and like require you to like get outside of yourself to understand them. So I think like horror fiction is like especially fantastic for this. Uh, I really like the works of like H.P. Lovecraft. Um, Neil Gaiman's Sandman is one that I think is particularly suitable for the sacred reading practice. Um, really deeply surreal content. Like um, I love Jorge Luis Borges's work. I think that he's a profound revelator, which would be a good um, candidate for this kind of practice. Yeah, the Christians they have a lot of lot to offer, but they. Um, are too narrow and restrictive about the revelation they engage with. And so mm -hmm. I think that realizing that, you know, there are prophets among us everywhere and always, and that we can engage in their works um, as if they were sacred texts, as if they were scripture, and be similarly transformed and initiated into a, a different kind of world where our participation patterns change. Um, yeah, you can do that with like pretty much anything. This concludes the first part of my conversation with Daniel Gregg. The second part of our conversation will be published soon in another podcast. So, if you're interested, please keep an eye out for that. The book that Daniel and I discussed today was Illumination Games, A Guide to Psychedelics and Mystical Experiences. And this forthcoming book will be published under the name Damien Walker. The music that began today's podcast was also created by Daniel Gregg, and that was for the musical project Delirium. So, I sincerely hope that you'll give Daniel's projects a look, and that you will join us for the second episode of my conversation with Daniel Gregg, coming in the near future. Thanks, as always, for listening.